Let me uh, change some stuff here. Hey, there you go. All right, let's go Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Let's get the lights up if we could. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room and the little racks underneath the seats. Um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for you to grab one of those. Uh, take that home, call it your own, start reading it. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. Uh, God's words are more powerful than Stephen's words. In every measurable way, all right? And so if you hear nothing that I say this morning, but you take a Bible home and you start reading it, I will call that a win, all right? And so uh, God doesn't need me, uh, but I'm going to do my best to explain the scriptures this morning, but he doesn't need me, all right? And so if you don't have a Bible, steal that one, and we'll celebrate, all right? Um, Genesis chapter 11, uh, we're a few weeks now into a new series, a brand new series that we're calling The Story of God, and the premise is really simple. Uh, we believe that the whole Bible is about Jesus, not just the New Testament stuff, and not even just the prophecy stuff towards the end of the Old Testament. We believe the whole Bible is about Jesus, and Jesus agrees with us. He tells uh, a couple of his disciples, uh, some of his followers, um, on the morning of Resurrection Sunday, the first, very first Easter, right, he's walking with a couple of guys who don't know it's him. He's disguised himself, the Bible tells us, as he's walking with them down the road for about seven miles, so a three or four hour journey probably, because uh, they're not booked. It. They're just having a nice little jaunt down the road. All right? And so over the course of this time, he is explaining to them, Luke tells us in Luke 24, that he is uh, unpacking them, helping them understand all the things concerning himself in the writings of Moses and the prophets. The writings of Moses are the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We call it the Pentateuch or the Torah. All right? So the first five books of the Bible are about Jesus, according to Jesus. Like Jesus' name is never mentioned in any of those. So what do you do with that? Well, we, we think that Jesus walks through and says, you know, hey, you know that story about Noah, uh, Adam? That's really a story about Jesus. Let me show you how. You know the story about Noah? That's really a story about Jesus. Let me show you how. And so uh, the premise of our series is incredibly simple. We want to take a slow walk through the Old Testament and try to, to map out how all of these different stories, while they're standalone stories on their own, there's things that we can draw from them on their own. I'm not, we're not trying to, to, to take these stories and make them nothing. But at the same time, Jesus himself says that these are really about me. And so we want to go to those stories and look as closely as we can and answer the question, how does this story tell me about who God is? How does this story help me understand the gospel, right? And so it's early on. We've already looked at the stories of Adam and Noah, and this morning we get to focus our attention on Abraham. We've been saying uh, that in order for us to answer the larger question of how we, how does this story tell us about Jesus, how does this story tell us about the gospel, we need to answer four smaller questions to get there. Does anybody remember what those four questions are? Third week now. How was this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And how does this story preach the gospel? We knock out those four questions successfully. We can answer the much larger, how is this about Jesus question incredibly well. All right? So are you all ready to look at the life of Abraham this morning? Let's give him some profile. Abram or Abraham. Why two names? Because God changes his name. He starts out as Abram. God eventually, much later in his life, calls him, begins to call him Abraham as a, as a sign of, of how God has changed his identity through covenant. All right? um, here's the deal, though. That happens really late in his life, and we're not talking about it today. So like, like, that would be a good thing to spend our time on, but there's so much 
in the life of Abraham, we're just not going to have time to cover that part of his life. There's a bunch of other things that we need to look at this morning in order to, to tell the story of Abraham really well. All right? And so for the most part, you're going to hear us call him Abram today. But if you don't have much of a church background, you're probably more familiar with Abraham. Same dude. All right? All right? Um, so what else do we have in this guy's profile? Seriously old. Like seriously old. Had many sons. And as you can probably guess, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And if you know Jesus, so are you. So... Let's just praise the Lord. Okay. Carry on. All right. So question number one. How was this person raised up? Genesis chapter 11. You ready? We're going to be in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, of, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Okay, so if you don't know the story, God also changed Sarai's name to Sarah. So if you're familiar with Abraham, Sarah... Abram and Sarai, again, later in life, it actually happens in chapter 17. We're not going to look at, verse, at chapter 17 today, but for the most part, you'll hear Sarai. Uh, yeah, I think all morning you'll hear, hear Sarai. All right, verse 31. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, so Abram went, and as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had, they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord he who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So Abram appears to not be much of anybody, right? He, he doesn't seem to be a somebody. He's kind of a nobody. Like we don't, we don't learn anything special about him here, right? This is God's first interaction with Abram. And it just kind of happens out of the blue. We get a little bit of genealogy, and then all of a sudden it's Abram's story, right? Like we learned in chapter 11 that he's the descendant of Noah's son Shem. I spared you the reading of the whole genealogy. You can thank me in the form of coffee gift cards later. <laughs> we can go back. But being from the line of Shem is not something special right now because pretty much a third of the world is from the line of Shem. Like Abraham... Isn't that special? So God shows up. God calls Abram to leave what was comfortable and safe and instead follow him, right? He says, leave your father's house. And while that may sound like an adventure for a lot of young guys today, in Abram's day, 
slightly riskier thing. Like in our day, like the idea, I was, I was ready to get out of my parents' house. Don't lie. Don't lie. Yeah, so were they. <laughs> they loved me. I was their favorite. Shut up. <laughs> All right. No. In Abram's day, in the culture that Abram lived in, leaving your father's house while your father was still alive meant what? Walking away from your inheritance. It means walking away from everything that is going to set him up financially for his future. Some of y'all may be asking, though, but isn't Abram's father Terah dead already? Doesn't it say so in chapter 11, verse 32? We read it, right? But this is where we need to remember that the rules of the game change when you're changing genre. We read things differently when the genre changes. Chapter 11 is genealogy. Chapter 12 begins back with historical narrative, right? And so... Terah's life is being drawn to a close. The story of Terah is being drawn to a close at the end of that genealogy before it introduces the story of Abraham. And we can prove it, right? We can do the math here. It says, um, Terah is 70 years old when Abram is born. In verse 4, we learn that Abram is 75 and God comes to him the first time, which would make Terah what? About 145? And how old does it say that Terah lives to? 205. So Terah's probably kicking around for about 60 years before he dies after Abraham leaves, right? So Abram is, Abram's daddy's still very much in the picture here. Which means Abram is being called to leave everything that would have been his, everything he would have called his own, and set off in a different direction. I mean, yeah, he's got some of his own possessions. He's an adult. He's acquired some of his own stuff. But the lion's share? The inheritance, he's, God's calling him to walk away from this. It's a bold move. God says, but it's deeper than just family and stuff, right? It's deeper than just family and material possessions because God says, go to a land that I will show you. Does Apple Maps exist yet? Can Abram Google what's going on in the land of Canaan right now? When I was getting ready to move our family from Texas to, to Nashua, I spent probably two months just devouring everything Google would tell me about the city of Nashua, right? I knew kind of what the housing market would be. I knew where the best coffee shops were. I was very interested in learning whether or not I was ever going to get good Tex-Mex again, all right? The answer is no. I love you, but no. <laughs> The prospect of moving across the country caused me to invest deeply and study and figure out as much as I could, right? Many of y'all have walked through seasons exactly like that. And maybe, maybe you didn't have the same kind of technological capabilities at your, at your feet to do that. Maybe it was a different era, but you still did what you could because this is a big deal, right? God comes to Abram and he says, no, Leave your father's house and follow me. Go to the land that I will show you. And that's all God gives him. That's it. Abram doesn't know what's going on in Canaan. He doesn't even know the name of the place yet. God comes to him. And what appears to, in verse 12, be the first time they interact with each other. God says, go until I say stop. And Abram says, okay. 
That's a big ask, right? It's a big ask. God is a God Abram doesn't know very well yet. But Abram says, okay. But God also makes him an incredibly outlandish promise. He says, I will make you a great nation. That's a bold promise on its own, right? The idea of Abraham's lineage being this mass of people eventually. Like, to me, that's a bold promise, right? And I'm in my 30s and have a couple of kids already. Like, hey, Katie, we got a, <laughs> we got a job to do. But Abraham and I are not in the same life stage, are we? Abraham is not in his 30s with a couple of kids already. Abram is 75 and childless. He's starting to run out of time here. But God makes the promise to Abram, and Abram believes it. We have a few more questions to discuss this morning. Namely, what made him a seemingly bad choice? It's great that Abram believed God. Are we sure that God should have chosen him? Look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his, and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram lies about his wife, right? He lies about his wife. Uh, he allows her to be taken from him because he's scared that he might get hurt. Like, what do you do with that? Like, we could honestly just show some old clips of Jerry Springer episodes, right? It, the story we're talking about is not a whole lot better. Abram turns yellow-bellied and lies about Sarah being his wife, which opens the door for Pharaoh to say, I want her. Right? Like, not a strong move on Abram's part. He, he kind of cowards out here. And if that's not bad enough, Abram gets rich off of this deal and receives a bunch of livestock and slaves for the dowry. Right? Isn't that what it said? He essentially sold her into sex slavery. Hey, don't say you're my wife. Say you're my sister. And then Abram gets rich off of this. Classy guy, right? Now there are some... Some who want to skirt the issue and argue that, well, he isn't technically lying because Sarai is actually Abram's half-sister. In fact, Abram says that at another time. But those are people whose theology require that Abraham be without sin. 
There's no way to make this look pretty. Abram's kind of a train wreck. But wait, there's more. Because this isn't just a one-time mistake. Hold your finger in, chap- in this chapter. Go to chapter 20 real quick. Look at verse 1. We're going to come back to this chapter, but just look at 20 real quick. From there, this is a different story. From there, Abraham, his name has already been changed by this point, journeyed toward uh, the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, what? She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. For Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? So what happens? The doofus does it again. Right? Think that ever came back to haunt Abraham in his relationship with Sarah? Think she ever brought that up? Hey, babe, sorry I'm late for supper. Oh, that's okay, sweetie. It's not like you sold me into sex slavery or anything. Oh, wait, there was that one time. And that second time. Abraham is a terrible husband. Terrible husband. A train wreck. We haven't even gotten to the worst stuff yet. Abraham is a bad husband. Abram is also an adulterer. Genesis 16. Verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. They still don't have kids yet. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived in 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Abram is an adulterer. But, 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 but Sarah gave him, him permission. It's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. There was no way, no way that that was going to work out in his favor. No chance. But Abraham is dumb enough to follow through with it. And so now he's got some new problems on his plate, right? But hear me. Even though Abram's relationship life is exactly like a Jerry Springer episode, that is not the biggest problem here. Abram had God's promises in his back pocket. Even though he's completely jacking up his marriage with Sarah, Abram has a deal with God here. And so Abram's biggest problem is not Sarah at the moment. Permission or not, it wasn't up to Abram and Sarai to find a workaround for God's plan. It wasn't up to Abram and Sarai to create an alternative solution on their own. He didn't need them to come up with some scheme to help him bring about his purposes for them. Well, maybe God means this. That action is yes 
causing problems in their marriage. But first and foremost, it's an act of not trusting God. It's an act of failing to trust what he's actually said. But the hits just keep on coming because there's a third reason that Abram is a seemingly bad choice. Abram is also a pagan idolater. Hold your finger in Genesis. Flip to Joshua 24. For those of you who don't know the Bible well, um, this is happening several hundred years later. Uh, Abram eventually does have kids. His kid has a kid. That kid has a kid. kid, That kid has like 13 kids. And they end up moving to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. So God moves this family from the land of Canaan back to Egypt. And they end up being in Egypt for over 400 years as slaves. They flourish there. Their their numbers just explode there. They go from one giant family to a family of uh, a couple of million people in that time, but Pharaoh enslaves them. They, they stay in Egypt for several hundred years. God raises up another man named Moses to lead them out of slavery. They, they wander in the wilderness for a generation because of some sin issues, and then God brings them to the edge of the promised land, the land that he's been promising Abram that he's going to give him all the way back in Genesis 12. All right? God allows, kills off Moses, essentially. Moses dies at the finish line. They raise up Joshua to be the new leader of God's people, and Joshua's giving them the Gipper speech, getting ready to march into the land. All right? That's what's going on in Joshua 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes, in verse 1, gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram, and of Nahor, and they what? When God comes to Abram, Abram cannot fairly be called a God-seeker. He certainly can be called a God-worshipper. Abram is actively serving other gods. Abram ain't no blue blood here. Abram, it says that he's even from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's another name for Babylon. In the Bible. Again, maybe you don't know your Bible well. Babylon is never the good guys. Like all throughout the Bible, you see it in the introduction of Abraham. Like they're even where the bad guys come from in Revelation. To be associated with Babylon is not a good thing in the Bible. But that's where Abram is from. They're always the bad guys. And so follow me here. The story of Abram does not begin with God selecting the best candidate to work with out of the group of faithful God-fearers in the land. That's not Abram's story. God's not going, I need to find me a good guy here that can carry through what I need to happen. Who am I going to select? Like it's draft week in the NFL, right? Who am I going to select? Who's going to get me there? So what exactly does God see in Abram to make him go, that's the one? That's the one I'm going to use? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that's the point. That's the point. Abram is not even nothing. He's less than nothing. God seems to have chosen the worst case scenario here. 
God has intentionally chosen the worst case. He chose a spineless, childless, and adulterous pagan to be the father of his covenant people. Why would he do that? Because God's story is a redemption story. And that brings us to our third question for the morning, right? What did God do to redeem him? Genesis chapter 15. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abram trusted God, right? He trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, the Bible tells us. And even though we're only three weeks into this, I hope you're starting to see a consistent theme throughout the series, right? Noah trusted God. Abram trusted God. He calls you and I to trust God. Like, that, that's what we're going to be talking about over and over and over again throughout this series. It's almost like the gospel hasn't changed. When we talk about the gospel in here, we are ultimately talking about a God who has called you to trust him. We are talking about a God who looks at our inability to be righteous on our own and instead takes our feeble faith. Jesus gladly, gladly takes your trust in him and instead gives you his righteousness. Martin Luther once called this, this reality the great exchange. And it is about as one-sided of a deal as you can possibly imagine. The Bible teaches that the cross of Jesus was not simply a metaphorical event. It wasn't some cute little example for us to follow. No, something is being accomplished in that moment. Jesus is paying the debt for our sins. And so how does he pay the debt for our sins? No, he takes our sins from us and puts it on him. And he gives us his righteousness instead. That when we trust him as he has called us to trust him, he takes our sin he gives us his righteousness. And the Bible teaches that in that moment, we are legitimately seen as clean in his eyes. Because we are wearing his righteousness. Abram does exactly that, which means, National Baptist Church, it is incredibly easy to preach the gospel out of the life of Abraham. So you ready? Let's do it. How does the story of Abraham preach the gospel? Well, the gospel deal for Abram is the exact same deal that God offers to you and I. The exact same deal. We can flesh this out a little bit better by looking at the rest of chapter 15. Pressing a little deeper into Abram's story. And he said to him, 
I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to the, on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So, Abram asks for a sign, and God decides to give him one, right? He asks for a sign. I've asked for signs often. Don't always get an answer. God gives Abram an answer. But what does God tell him? Well, he tells him to bring a very specific collection of animals, right? You remember what some of them were? Heifer, goat, a couple of birds, ram. He tells him to bring an incredibly specific collection of animals. And what does Abram do? He brings the animals, right? All of them. The the exact collection. Everything God asked for to the letter, right? Then what does Abram do? He cuts some of them in half. Specific ones in half. And he doesn't cut other specific ones in half. And then what does he do? He lays them down on the ground in two equal rows, right? Why? Did God tell him to do that? Are the words... Cut them in half. Cut this animal, this animal, this animal, and this animal in half and lay them on the ground in two equal rows found in the text here. So how did Abram know to do that? Because it's a practice he'd done before. God tells Abram to set up for a covenant ceremony. In the culture that Abram is living in, when establishing a covenant, a contract between two parties, all right, the, the I'm going to do this and, and you're going to do this kind of agreement, they would take this specific set of animals, they would cut specific ones in half, they would lay them on the ground, and then both parties would walk through this line of animals, essentially saying that if I don't hold up to my end of the deal, may what happened to these animals happen to me. If I don't hold up my end of the deal... This is what is to become of me. Well, that's pretty neat. But the story isn't over yet. Look at verse 12. And the sun was going down, or as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. That is a deep sleep. 13, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Call a little time out here. If anybody's struggling with the, with the question of why is God allowed to, to wipe out the people that are living in the land, the promised land, as they're coming out of Egypt, that's a massive answer to that question. It's not the only answer. We can talk about that at another time, but that is a massive answer to that question. The question should not be, is God so mean that he would kill a bunch of people? The question is, how can God be so merciful that he allows a nation to build up iniquity for 400 years? But carry on. As for you and your fathers, you shall go to your fathers in, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. 
Verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, I think I pronounced that right, but moving on, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So there's a question that we got to ask this morning. How many parties pass through the lines? In a covenant ceremony, both parties pass through the line because they both have their end of the deal to hold up, right? But in our story, how many parties pass through the lines of carcasses? God put Abram to sleep, right? And he passed through it on his own. We got this smoking fire pot and a torch. God passed through it himself. So who's on the hook here? Well, God's on the hook here. God is the one who's on the hook here because God is the only one who's capable of actually living up to his end of the deal. Like, remember who we're talking about, right? You remember who Abraham is? You think Abraham's got what it takes to live up to his end of the deal? I mean, he's proven so, right? If the success of his deal was left up to spineless, childless, adulterous, pagan Abraham, do we really think it would have gotten very far? But we're obviously better than Abraham, right? I don't know what you're talking about. I am. The gospel is not a deal. It is not a deal that God contributes 99% to and we're responsible for the other 1%. That deal would still fall flat on its face. I cannot be trusted with my 1%. It will not end well. Even if I can make things work and keep the plates spinning for a little bit, I don't have enough energy to keep them spinning. That's still giving myself too much credit. The gospel is a completely one-sided covenant. And anything less than that would ultimately fail because I can't be trusted. The gospel is not that we team up with God for him to save us. The gospel is that God saves sinners for his glory. That's the gospel found in Abraham. But there's another way. There's another way that Abram's story preaches the gospel, and it's found all the way back in the beginning of his story in Genesis chapter 12. The very introduction of Abram into God's story tells us this in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be bled. So the, uh, blessed. And so the question we have to ask this morning is, who are all the families of the earth? In the very first interaction between God and Abraham, we get a glimpse that God is doing something far bigger than just little old Abraham. As Abram is introduced into God's story, God is immediately launching the, the idea that this is way bigger than you, kid. So one more text for the morning, Galatians chapter 3. 
Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this letter to a church that's struggling to understand the gospel well. They, they keep working uh, a works-based idea into the equation. Uh, they believe that, that God saves them in faith, but then they got to come in and, and kind of keep the, the ship running. All right? So that's kind of what they're struggling with. And so Paul writes this letter in love. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, and you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness... Skip down to verse 23. Uh, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's what? Heirs according to promise. So according to the Apostle Paul, Abraham's offspring are not simply those with Jewish ancestry, right? They are the ones who have come to God in faith. We're not talking about an ethnic thing anymore. And even as God selects one family to be the ethnic representative and prepare the world for the coming of Jesus, even as God is singling out one people group, he is already promising that this is going to be way bigger than one people group. And so what begins with Abraham flowers out into every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. What begins with Abraham ends up with all the families of the earth being blessed. What begins with Abraham culminates in the throne of Jesus Christ at the end of history. There is one overarching theme to this series. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so for our purposes this morning, God raised up Abraham to be a shadow of a more perfect Abraham to come in Jesus. The story of God is no small deal. It is the greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know. It is in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. God is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason that his entire creation will forever see just how glorious and just how good he is. So, how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you press in to, to God, right? And you do that by pressing into his, his word. We, we talked at the beginning of our time this morning that, that, that my words are way less valuable and way less effective than his words are. And so if that's the primary place that he's given us to, to pursue him and come to know him and experience him, listen, you press into him there. You spend your time there. Don't worry about here. You press in to God today. We can take another step, right? Maybe you need to repent of some stuff this morning. Maybe you need to repent of how you've seen your own salvation story. You, you come in thinking that God needs you on his team. 
Isn't he so glad to have you working for him? Wasn't true for Abraham. It's not true for me. It's not true for you. Abraham was not first picking the draft material. Neither am I. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk and pray with you if that's something that would be valuable for you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I know we say it every week. I'm going to keep saying it until I run out of the ability to say it. We hope that you find this to be a, a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. We hope that this is a place where you can ask good questions and hopefully get back good answers. We're not scared of that here. But you can respond to God's word today as well. You do that by meeting the one that this story is all about. Maybe you're here today and for the very first time you want to take that step to repenting of your sin and calling him Lord. Maybe Abram's story is familiar to you because it's pretty much your life. You walk in a land that's pretty dark. You got a life that's pretty evidently far from him. You got a bunch of stuff in your personality, that skill set, whatever, that would make you, lead you to believe that God has no business having a relationship with you. Welcome to the team. You sit next to me on the short bus. If that's you today, we want to give you a chance to respond as well. I'm going to pray. We're going to Sing, we'll have a couple of people up front here to talk and pray with you, walk you through what that looks like. But let me give you the, the cliff notes. You repent of your sin before him. You trust him and him alone for salvation. You call on the name of the Lord. I'd love to flesh that out some more with you. Come talk to me. But let's pray and sing and respond to God's word today. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the story of Abraham. God, I am far more like Abraham than I want to give myself credit. I've got story after story after story in my life that shows me, proves to me that I have no business knowing you. And by your good design, that is exactly who you want. And I'll never come to grips with why me. But I can celebrate your goodness in the meantime. God, for those of us in here who, who know you, would you draw us deeper still? Would you rip from us prideful things so that we'll cling better to you? God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them this morning? Would you breathe life into people and make people come alive today? Draw them to yourself. God, we love you. Thank you for the chance to get to celebrate what you, who you are and what you've done today. And we stand faithful. In your name.